Hello everyone, and welcome to Sega Saturn Shiro, the only podcast that finds pandas and bare naked ladies to join the podcast. Today's Shiro's are Peter, Ben, Nick, Dave, and myself, Patrick. To start off, we'd like to welcome our newest Shiro, drumroll, Nick, aka Pandemonium Reviews. Hello. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on board. It's uh it, it was an honor when you guys invited me to become a member of the podcast team, and I'm very excited to be on, so this is great. Thank you guys for having me. Yes, it's great to have you on. I guess before we start, we have a couple questions for you. We're going to interrogate you a little bit, if that's cool. Why are you reviewing all the Saturn games? Well, I needed a hobby, so that's kind of the short story of it. The Saturn has always been a, a favorite console of mine since high school. Um, I didn't grow up with it. I, I grew up with PlayStation, so it's kind of strange that I got into Sega at all. Um, but throughout growing up, I discovered emulators, and through that, I kind of discovered Sega um, throughout junior high and high school. The Saturn was always kind of an intriguing thing. I got into the Dreamcast pretty quick, uh, burnt a lot of games for it. I had a big, giant booklet of Dreamcast games, but the Saturn library always was always intriguing because I, I really liked the, the retro-style games which the Saturn has, of course, a very rich library of. I think it was sophomore year of high school, I finally got one, chip modded it right away, and just like spent several weekends throughout high school burning game after game for it and just running through a bunch of them. Uh, a lot of good multiplayer memories. Me and my friends played a lot of Saturn Bomberman uh, through that, so that was fun. But yeah, so uh, at the tail end of college, I, I was a, you know, a broadcast journalism major. And I was thinking about like, I need some kind of, uh, of, a, of a video hobby um, to kind of keep me busy and keep me interested in video in case work bogs me down with that. And originally I was gonna review every N64 game because I thought that would get more views. But uh, of course that is sacrilege and, and worthy of execution by intergalactic law. So uh, I decided to instead stick with the console that I actually like love playing and care about. You know, the N64 is fun and all, but I, I really have always enjoyed Saturn games. Like, there's just something about it that I really like. And so I thought it'd be fun to review every American Saturn game by order of release date and sort of uh, have that run into uh, a, a sort of docuseries type of thing where it's uh, focusing on the games, of course. Each episode focuses on, on a game and breaking down the gameplay, and but also about the history of it, how the game was developed, if I, if I can get the information about it and uh kind of having that all tie into a like a what will eventually be an extremely long series of reviews that tell the tale of the saturn's very difficult commercial journey through north america uh, so that's that's why i'm doing it the short answer is it's a hobby and the long answer is what i just spent the last three or four minutes explaining yeah i really love how you contextualize the the games i think that's important for uh, archival you know telling the story and the the history Kind of like what Jeremy Parrish does with the Game Boy works and stuff. It really puts the context of the game. Right, right. I, I do. I have watched some of the Game Boy works videos. I think his stuff's really, really solid. And uh, yeah, I enjoy doing it. And that's that's kind of the goal there. Kind of tell the story behind the game a little bit. So Nick, what kind of timeline are you thinking? Because I mean, we're talking you know roughly 250 North American Saturn games, and that's a lot of games. So my current list, and I, I think it's pretty solid right now. I don't think I've missed any games. Uh, right now I have 246 commercially released North American Saturn games on there. And I also plan on reviewing some of the canceled games that maybe they have leaked betas or prototypes, or maybe they have a lot of information about 
what they were and why they got canceled and had ports and other consoles. So uh, by the end of the series, I'll have reviewed roughly 300 or so games. Each review, uh, it depends on how long it takes for production. I would say for video editing, you can amount that to being like uh, whatever, like a minute of editing video will probably take an hour, but that can also vary a lot depending on what I'm doing. The video that, you know, how long they be, I usually try to shoot for them being like a little less than 10 minutes, but sometimes they can get longer. Uh, especially with the more recent one when I had an interview with the developer, that one got really long. That was more than a half hour, but there was just so much information that I got from him that I needed to cram in. Yeah, it really varies from game to game how long they take to make. Sometimes a, a game review can take me less than two weeks to write and edit. Sometimes it takes a lot longer than that. I'm guessing I'll probably have this series done in like maybe 10 years. <laughs> so depending on real life scenarios and stuff. The, the important thing is this ensures that I always have a hobby, no matter what. So it's a fair, yeah, that's fair. But yeah, so I'll keep going with it, and uh, I don't plan on stopping ever. So, yeah, we'll we'll see when I get it done. I'm guessing it will probably take about a decade, unless you have kids. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, we'll be showing these videos to our kids as they're growing too. This is fantastic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the Dreamcast video will be required viewing. So it will be. Yes, yes. So they can learn how to burn them. It's very educational. Very informative. Definitely. Nothing's out of date on that video. Nope, not at all. How will you uh, review long games such as RPGs? I play a lot of games in advance. So, uh, like right now, I've, I've, been, I've already burnt the copy of Romance of the Three Kingdoms. I'm going to start playing that while also playing High Octane and Offworld Interceptor. So, longer, like I know what games are going to be longer. If it's an arcade-style game, like I can obviously crank, crank that out like in a week. Uh, unless it's really difficult and I need to spend time learning it. But obviously the longer RPGs, they take a longer amount of time to play. So I will play games in advance of other games that I'm reviewing, still record it. I think the important thing that uh, people who review games should do is take notes while playing the games and take notes while recording it. That really helps with the process because you don't have to think back at the game after playing it and be like, okay, what did I notice? Like you've already got all the notes in front of you of what, what happened while you were playing it. And then it's also helpful to uh, have those notes coincide with whatever your, your clip titles are and time codes are so you can very easily reference and go back when editing video later. So it's a lot of working on reviews in advance of each other, doing the research on, on, on those games before I you know finish whatever comes before it kind of a thing. It's a lot of kind of trying to plot things out and work in advance. I like to try and get uh, to a point where I'm really releasing a video once every two weeks. For a while there earlier this year, I had that workflow going pretty good. But um, sometimes real life gets in the way or a review takes longer because there's more stuff. And that kind of throws things off for a bit. But, it, you know, I'm usually at some point able to get back into doing a video every two weeks as long as I work in advance and try to schedule things out as best I can. Um, while also being efficient without having it sacrifice, having, without having the efficiency sacrifice the quality of the research and the videos. A lot of workflow type of stuff. It's... Nick, do you, do you find that you take a different approach with a game that you like versus a game that you don't really like at all? That's a good question. I, I feel like yes and no. I, I try to treat every game fairly with the reviews. Some of the earlier reviews that I did when I started the series two years ago aren't as long and are not as well detailed because I didn't have the workflow down as much. With a game that I like, I already know a lot about it, so it's probably going to take less time to make. I'll still do research and stuff. And I feel like with games that I don't like, I, I feel the need to do more with them. I feel the need to do more research on them. 
Uh, chances are, if it's a game I don't like, other people probably didn't like it either, so it's probably not reviewed. There probably isn't a lot of material written about it out there. That kind of opens up a window for me to kind of crack that, and I think Genwar is a good example. Like, I wasn't like a huge fan of it when I started playing it, and I don't think many people are. That led me to want to learn more about it, to play more of it, kind of find its merits. Uh, I found its, you know, one its lead developer and talked to him about it, and he had a lot to say about the difficulties with from their end with working with Sega in '94 and '95. I know some developers had an easier time uh, than they did, but um, uh, you know, really learning like, oh, okay, so this happened because a lot of things got in the way of development. You know, um, I, I I think I learn more about games I don't like because I I, I kind of force myself to learn more about them. Whereas with games I do like, like with the first Panzer Dragoon, there's already so much material about it. Like there's not a, there's not a ton I can say about it that people don't already know, but I'll you know have the important factoids in there. So you were talking about how you were talking to the developers about the process on some of these games. How much research uh, goes into each one of these videos? Several hours. If there's already a lot of material out there on the research end, like for example with Rayman, there was already a ton of people who had already talked to the developers. I wouldn't have been able to talk to the developer because he's French, and I, I don't speak French. Uh, and many of the developers for the games are Japanese and don't speak a lot of English, and I also don't speak Japanese. So, uh, but with the more popular games, there's already a ton of research already done. So I'll spend hours combing through every article I can find, every video I can find on it, any kind of mention or appearance at an event or a conference or something. I'll, I'll, I'll try basically try to spend as much time soaking in as much information I can about a game uh, to, to research it, and that, that can often take several hours. It depend, It varies from game to game, of course. Some games don't take a ton of time to research because the info is easily accessible. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely, because some of that stuff out there is very difficult to find. It is, yes. It's a lot of going through old magazines, uh, a lot of going through dead websites with the, the old internet wayback machine. That can give you a lot of good info, by the way. Going down that internet way back machine rabbit hole is a fun trip, dude. But it is. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I bet it is. And uh, the magazines are good too because um, I, when these games came out, the the journalists of the time did a lot of the legwork with talking to the developers and talking to the teams about those games while they were being made, while they were relevant, and uh, finding those can be super helpful. They're really, really hard to find, but most wikias have them sourced. Um, if I if I'm reviewing a game that came out in a particular month, I'll probably go through all of the magazine, all of the major gaming magazines that came out in that month to see if I can find anything on it. Oh, or if I, you know, I have like a running list of notes where it's like, oh, I, I see this person talked about this game in this magazine from months before it came out. Uh, I'll bring it up when I review this game later and try to kind of keep tabs on that. Um, I, I, I go through old magazines during breaks at work <laughs> and like stuff like that to just keep digging for stuff and finding things. Um, they, they, there are a lot of pretty decent interviews with uh, publishers and developers uh, hidden in those. Uh, Next Generation was obviously really, really good. Um, Game Fan was a, a good Sega proponent. They didn't do a ton of research, but they, they have a lot of release date info that a lot of the mags don't. GamePro and EGM, you know, they have their, their ups and downs, but they, they did have a few writers who did a lot of good, uh, like, journalistic articles. And that, that helped paint a picture of what was going on at the time. So that, I think old magazines are, like, a super helpful thing for researching those games. And, of course, old websites, too. Yeah, your attention to detail is great, you know, and I think it shows in the videos. 
one thing I will say is that uh, is that your ability to kind of look at these games in context and then form opinions based on the information that you know uh, from you know from back in the day and how it was perceived help I think you come to like you said a better understanding of the game and maybe a better enjoyment of the game because these days we're spoiled by you know creature comforts modern you know gameplay uh, enhancements and it's really hard to kind of put our frame of view you know set to set it back and just say you know okay what did this game have going for it and I, I definitely think that that's what your videos do they, they seek to find like the best parts of a game and obviously they they don't fail to disclose you know the uh, shortcomings but uh, but they definitely seek to find the the meat of a game and like what it had going for it and i do think that that uh, that helps me understand the games better and and helps folks get bet more enjoyment out of a game that they might have just passed up because they're you know playing on an emulator and they're just, just choosing from a, a list of games you know and uh, they might burn through 15 minutes and be like no this isn't worth my time Right on. Oh, thank you for saying that. That's definitely uh, something I try to focus on with the videos. And I feel like, um, and saying this might make me lose some credibility with some of the some of the people out there, but it's a little more difficult for me to get into that context because I, I was born in 1994. I'm one month older than the Japanese Sega Saturn. <laughs> uh, so uh, it's kind of, it's hard for me to, to like put myself in the 1990s as much as like people who are a little older than me can because there are many who moved to Sega Saturn when it came out and they lived it. They understand what it was like and what gaming in the 90s at that point was like. And I, I, you know, I grew up with games in the 1990s. My dad and mom were total nerds and we had, you know, Super Nintendo and PlayStation and all this other stuff in the house. But I think trying to immerse myself into that era as best I can, I, I'm constantly playing fifth gen games. It's my favorite era of games. And I've been playing those games for like years like pretty much my whole life i've been constantly playing at least one or two games from the fifth gen at some point in time and that's helped it's good to not be the youngest guy here anymore yes that's right i beat you <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> i gotcha but, um so and yeah. i used to round it up uh, what would you say your favorite saturn game is uh darius gaiden uh, it's obviously not technolo technologically the best game for it, but that was the first Saturn game I played, and I, I was already a big Darius fan. You're, you're blowing up giant mechanical space fish that shoot lasers and missiles. What the hell is there not to love about it? Sign and, me uh, up. Right? Yeah. And I absolutely been, agree with that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I've always been a huge shmup fan, and so Darius Gaiden was one of my like bucket list shmup games growing up, and. When I finally, you know, got my Saturn stuff, I'm like, all right, here we go. Let's play some fucking Darius Guide and fired it up and it blew me away, man. The visuals for it are incredible, especially for the time when you think about the sprite work that we had then. And the arcade conversion to the Saturn was super well done, especially when you compare it to the, the PS1 Darius Guide, which is horrible. Like, it's abysmal by comparison. The Saturn conversion does it justice. It's 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 really well done. It doesn't lose a whole lot. There's maybe a little bit of slowdown here and there. And it's it's huge too, especially for a shmup because it branches out into that triangle map. There are many, many, many different pathways you can take to beat the game. And it's it's challenging enough to, to, to hold your interest. It feels like I'm playing a new game every time I, I pick a different endpoint to work my way through. And uh, I, I still get a lot of enjoyment out of it to this day. Uh, I, I pirate a lot of my games because Saturn games are expensive and I don't have enough money to buy all the ones I want to play because they're hundreds of dollars now. But Darius Gaiden is one of the few I own a legitimate copy of and will proudly hold on to forever. So I think I can speak for all of us when we say we're happy to have you on board. 
Thank you. I'm happy to be on board. I, I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of the team. And uh, yeah, thank you guys for the kind words and for having me on. I came back from PRGE with a lot of loot. Uh, there was a lot of good stuff to be found over there. Um, surprisingly, there was a lot of Saturn products uh, being sold by the vendors. And um, in my video, you'll see how much is actually out there. And uh, it was really amazing to see how much Saturn stuff was available. And uh, it wasn't horribly priced either. So I was able to pick up a few things like a, um, you know, my copy of Corpse Killer that uh, I was just talking about earlier is uh, I picked that up from PRG. I got it for, I think it was like 30 bucks, I think somewhere around there. So Saturn stuff is definitely available. You got uh, the vendors with a lot of the imports, which the imports just open up a broad range of stuff we've never even seen over here. And just a lot of great, great things to get in touch with. Um, and, um, and just in general, uh, for all the different systems, uh, there, there's something for you to find for everybody. It's, uh, it's a very good show for any of the fans of, uh, the retro gaming community. And in, then on the other half of the show, you've also got the gaming that you can play with the, uh, open area. You've got pinball machines galore. You've got, uh, game machines, arcade cabinets. Uh, you got a bunch of consoles. Um, me and Peter even played this pinball machine that was a uh, versus system and so the way it's laid out it's a it's a full-on pinball machine but it lays out flat and uh, each side is slightly sloped so when you shoot the ball there's a chance that you can get it to the other person's side and then they're having to deal with two balls on their side which can be rather entertaining to watch just a great show all around uh love connecting with the fans love seeing everything that was going on over there i if, if you have the ability to go, I absolutely recommend it. Nice. Did you have any interactions with any, uh, I guess, YouTube people? I definitely ran into Johnny Mono a couple of times, and uh, he's a great person to interact with. He, he's so much fun to talk to. Um, another person that I ran into... Let me think here. Sorry, it's sorry. Like bumping to me. It's like, what are you doing here, Patrick? <laughs> right? What's going on? I tried to uh, bump into a few times, like uh, the whole Metal Jesus crew, and they were they were staying at the same hotel that I was in, and it was uh, it was pretty interesting that all of those guys, it, also um, Modern Vintage Gamer, was staying there. So they were having drinks with Retro RGB, and uh, so I was talking to Retro RGB guys some over at the hotel. That was fun. Gotcha. Oh, what you talk to what you talk to Bob about? Oh, yeah. So I talked to Bob and Mike about basically uh, some modifications and tests that I wanted to try out with the Sega Saturn, specifically with um, some of the copyright protection. And they were very interested in what I was learning and uh, what was going on on my side of things, as much as I was interested on in how they were uh, trying to figure out their uh, Kohler signals and stuff like that for the RGB stuff. Yeah, no, that's, that's super interesting. I did you sell a, a Sega Saturn Shiro to them at all? You know, I think so. I um, They became more aware of us. And I think that's one of the big things that I was trying to push was just making sure that the people that are interested in Saturn know that there are people, us specifically, out there to push this product. And um, it's something that... I really believe in and I really like and I really enjoy. And so I believe that by doing so, it's something we can bring more people into. 
Okay, yeah, so aside from everything that I'd already mentioned, some of the things that I found at PRG personally that I thought was exciting was, uh, first of all, on the last day of the show, I came across a vendor that had uh, just found some new old stock Virtua Sticks. So these are the American ones, and they were still sh in their uh, shipping containers. So, you know, we literally watched him slice open the box, and then inside, it was a box that had two smaller boxes inside, and then each of the smaller boxes had three Virtua Sticks in each of them. And so he was selling them for 60 bucks. I ended up, you know, haggling them down a little bit, but pristine, brand new, never seen the light of day uh, Virtua Sticks. Now, these are the North American ones, so they're not the better later Japanese versions, but I couldn't pass up, you know, picking up a brand new piece of Saturn hardware that had never sort of been touched before. So that to me was super exciting. Nice. So did you get to keep the shipping box? You know what? No, because each shipping box had three Virtua sticks, so I wasn't able to keep it. But so, so funny story about that. So, you know, Virtua stick boxes are pretty big, and I only brought a small little suitcase with me. So I immediately had a problem of what am I going to, how am I going to get this, this Virtua box back home? It was a little bit too big to take on as carry on. And so what I ended up doing is uh, on my way to the airport, I actually stopped a couple of uh, tram stops early and I just hopped into a Target. And I ended up buying myself an extra piece of luggage so that I could fit, uh, put the Virtua stick in and then, uh, you know, take it home as checked luggage. So it was kind of an adventure to, to, to take this uh, Virtua box home. And I considered even potentially shipping it to myself. But because it was, you know, brand new, not a single scratch on it, I didn't want to take the chance of it getting completely smashed up, you know, by the post. So... Uh, it was just, it was one of those neat, interesting things where it's like, okay, I got this awesome new box and it's pristine and now what am I going to do with it to get it home? But it all ended up getting home perfectly well without any blemishes, so I'm super happy to have it on my uh, shelf. And now you got a new suitcase. And now I've got a new suitcase and kind of weird, but it was neat to go into a Target. We used to have Target up here in Canada, but they went out of business, I don't know, a good three, four years ago. So it's been a while since I've been in a Target. So it was sort of neat. So the weird thing is Target failed here, but we still have Toys R Us uh, stores everywhere. So what the f that's weird. <laughs> And it was, you know, it was a good store. It was a clean store. It was set up just like all the ones that were here in Canada. So they must have a template or whatever that they go off of. But yeah, like, I mean, it was it was just really bizarre for me to be in a Target again. So if I think about some of the other things that I've seen at the show. So I remember years and years ago, I ended up finding online, I think it was on an eBay auction, a picture of a Japanese Saturn controller, like a gray one inside of a U.S. box. And I, I grabbed the the picture from the internet at the time. I didn't I didn't go ahead and buy the uh, the controller, and I kick myself for it now. But for all these years, I've had this this picture, and I didn't know if the, if it was a real thing or if it was maybe just a prototype box or or what the deal was. But this year at PRG, I actually found this controller in the American box. It was the strangest thing. So now I know that it's real. It exists. It, it was something that actually was out there. I don't know the story behind it. It sure would be nice to know because it's such an oddity. But there we have it. It's a gray Japanese Saturn pad inside of a U.S. Uh, box. So that was super weird. Um, a couple other things that, that we found that really tickled me. Uh, one was we had a fellow uh, that was uh, vending that had one of the Saturn launch uh, units. And it had a super low serial number, like it was under a thousand. So it was definitely one of the first units off the production line. And this unit, uh, which was complete in box, actually came with a third party system disc. 
And so for those of you that don't know what a system disk is, it's essentially a disk uh, that was uh, used by first and third party that once you load the program, it overrides a bunch of the features of the BIOS. And so it will allow you to, for example, open the Saturn lid without having the system reset. It will allow you to load games without copy protection and a whole bunch of other features. And so obviously these were used for development and for testing of, of games and things like that. But to see a unit that was clearly one of the first units off the production line and that it came with an actual system disc, that was really special. One last thing that I'm gonna mention that really tickled me, and this was another bit of really rare Saturn technology, is there was a time where Sega was packaging Saturns along with keyboards, mice, Netlink units, as well as official Sega branded S video cables, and these became school systems. So they would actually ship these systems to schools. And I guess it was like a sort of a education type uh, setup where, uh, you know, schools could take uh, kids online and they could just do it over a TV. And it was, you know, it didn't last long. There weren't very many of these units produced, but I actually got to see one uh, in person at PRGE. And, and the real draw for me here was, I mean, essentially, these are all components that you can buy separately regularly, but the inclusion of the S-Video cable was neat because that's that's a piece of hardware that never came out in North America. And so the box for the S-Video cable is the Japanese box, so they never even made an American box for it. But it was just really neat to see the entire package and how it all sort of fit together. So... So anyways, those were my experiences with PRG in terms of Saturn. And like I said, I ran into a few folks that uh, I knew. Um, you know, Adam Korlick and I spent some time playing the Nintendo PlayStation um, because it was on display at PRG, so that was a bit of fun. Ran into John Hancock, Steve Wright, a couple other folks, and it was just, it was a blast. It was a really good time. Definitely would do it again. I know in 2020 the show is on in August instead of in October, so, you know, we'll see how that affects uh, turnout. And uh, if anything else, the highlight really was also just to see Ben and Kay uh, in person. That was really awesome. And yeah, definitely a good show and would definitely do it again. Did you uh, buy anything other than the uh, arcade stick or was that the only thing you purchased from PRGE? Um, I did end up buying a couple of other games. Uh, again, I was really sort of conscious about space. So I didn't want to get anything too big. So I picked up a bunch of demo discs for the Saturn because these were discs that I already have, but I didn't have the outer sleeves for them. So things like... The bootleg sampler number two, um, I ended up picking up a couple of the bug demo discs. Um, aside from Saturn, I ended up picking just the odd Genesis game that I sort of had an eye on. And also uh, Limited Run Games had a display at PRG. And there were a couple of Switch games that uh, had come out physically through them that I missed out on that I wanted to pick up on. So it was like, um, I think Iconoclast was one of them, um, as well as Night Trap. So that's another uh, Sega CD game that they ended up porting. They did the physical version of that, so I picked that up. Oh, and somewhere else I ended up finding a physical copy of Axiom Verge for the Switch, and I picked that up as well. So, But that's about it. So I didn't pick up too, too much, but uh, I did have my eye out on things that would either be uh, difficult to find or prohibitively expensive. And if I was able to get them cheaper, I, I picked them up. So uh, overall, I'm pretty happy, but definitely the Virtuous Stick was the highlight for me. Man, I would have loved to pick up that gray controller or the uh, that school yeah. system thing. Yeah, and see, the thing is, those, I mean, the guy that was vending, those were just his own personal uh, collection. They weren't for sale, but he sort of went over them uh, with myself and Kay and Ben, and it was just really neat to be able to see them, touch them, feel them. And yes, I 
I have to admit, I even smelt them. (sighs) (laughs) It was just really, really good. It was neat to know that these things are real and that they exist. So it was cool. Dang, I would have really killed to get both of those things in my collection. That's Can you something. describe the smell for me real quick? Was it like a hint of like uh, like raw tobacco, maybe an oaky smell to some of those older units? You know, it, it just it smelled like Nirvana. That's I'm just oh, gonna okay. leave it at that. It was nice. It was, yeah, real That's funny good. guys, real funny. I know a few of us have been playing some Halloween games. So why don't we talk about some of the games that we've been playing? Uh, did you want to start, Dave? Yeah. I've been um, obviously busy with a lot of a lot of things, but um, I have gotten to play a little bit of Halloween games here and there. Played a little bit of D because uh, we uh, we shared out this uh, Game Center CX video um, about D, and it seems like every year I have to pull that out and dust it off because it's such a great game. Um, I play. I've played a little bit of Bug Two. Uh, gotta love the the Weevil Dead. Uh, level that starts that game off it just has like the the best creepy halloween vibe um it's not an incredibly scary game by any means but it is dripping with kind of like the 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 whole halloween you know uh decorations and the haunted house and the the music is great you know so stuff like that I, i don't i haven't really touched on any other halloween games recently but yeah, you know, it's this time of year we uh, we tend to drag out. It's kind of like dragging out your Halloween decorations. <laughs> it's the same decorations every year, but I have fond memories for for all of it. So you know, we drag out a pile of of Saturn games, and uh, and we talk about it and reminisce on on our memories. But that's pretty much all I have to say. Nice, yeah. No, I really I really enjoy D. Uh, I'm not very good at it, but. It's still pretty fun. The concept's amazing for that game. The atmosphere is, it's just really cinematic and it's just tense, you know, because you only have those two hours to finish it. Um, and uh, if, if it's your first playthrough, it really is a treat. But even going back to it, it, it uh, I think it stands up. It holds up as, as one of the better FMV games, you know, to, if I had to give somebody an FMV game to kind of give them an experience and say, you know, this is what a good FMV game should be. It'd probably be D, something similar. It's probably one of the best, in my opinion. So I played D for the very first time just a few weeks ago. I wanted to sort of go through that experience for Halloween. I wrote up a big article on what that was like, so that should be live now. And I agree with you, Dave. So, you know, for a very first-time experience, it is. You don't really know what to expect. It is tense, and, and you know, the, the clock never stops. So you can't pause the game. You can't, you know you know, take a break and, you know, uh, go tend to other things because the the clock will just keep going. And so you you, got to keep moving forward. And so that's a very interesting sort of implementation of a sense of tension. So it's a, you know, it's it's certainly a very dated game in 2019, but, you know, for its time, it was pretty revolutionary. So I, I was very impressed with it. I feel like Kenji Ino, that was kind of his thing is he didn't just make games, he curated experiences and I would argue that um, there are wonderful things about today's modern games, you know, and, and and some people might argue that video games in general are just way better today. But one thing is people need to kind of have patience and open, keep an open mind for these like experiences because D was like a curated experience. 
and that's why it's two hours and that's why it's very cinematic and it's very high concept and you're you're really just supposed to um you know keep an open mind and just let the game be what it is you know and i feel like it may not be as popular today because people are just so impatient you know or they're not really willing to commit um, but if you really do sit down and maybe involve a friend or two and you just commit to the experience and and you experience this game um it is more artful than a lot of the games that that are put out today you know so i think i think that that's what kenji Eno was all about was not just making a game but like with the the game that was like just audio based i forget what it was called cause no regret so he would he would create these games and you know enemy zero for example where all the enemies are invisible and you have to use this like pinging in your ear like it wasn't just gameplay it was um it was like tense uh it was just an experience you know when i was doing the research for the game i came across an amazing quote uh about kenjiano when it was something along the lines of uh kenjiano was doing indie before indie was a thing that people knew you could do and i thought that was just perfect because he was way out there he was doing things that nobody else was doing and d was a perfect example of that absolutely mm-hmm. That's a, that's a very good way to sum them up. I'm super excited to read your article, by the way. <laughs> that's going to be my, <laughs> my, the, my weekend reading. So another game that I played for uh, this Halloween is Casper. So, you know, with Halloween, we typically talk about the heavy hitters that come up year after year. So I'm talking about, you know, the original Resident Evil or Castlevania. But we've talked about these games for a couple of years now. This is our third Halloween cast. And this year we figured we'd take a swing at some of the lesser known games that have a bit of a Halloween theme. And, you know, how can you go wrong with a game like Casper? So for those of you that have never played Casper... It's a game about uh, a little friendly ghost who is uh, inside of a home and, you know, he's got a family and it's very lighthearted. There's nothing overly scary uh, about it, but it does have a Halloween theme. I mean, there's ghosts that play tricks and he's got to avoid them and, you know, he's got to kind of search through uh, secret passageways and, you know, solve puzzles. So, again, it's not an overly scary game. It is geared more towards a younger audience. But if you're looking for a game with a Halloween theme that maybe doesn't get called out too often, then Casper's really a great choice. I'm just wondering if anyone else uh, uh, has had uh, any uh, time playing Casper. I haven't played it, but have you actually heard the rumors of the origin of Casper? Uh, no, do tell. Apparently, I was lampooning the Simpsons, but uh, there's a rumor that Casper is actually the ghost of Richie Rich. Nice. So, yeah, I've never really played it. I know about the the license and the you know the comic that spawned it, but I never really gave really licensed games much credit like that. How did you guys feel of it, like as a licensed game? Because obviously, it's based off the movie, right? Uh, my son and I have played it, and we loved it. But it is not an easy game. Well, it's funny. It it starts out easy. Let's just put it that way. It starts out easy, but then the difficulty ramps up due to the fact that it is really like a puzzle. Basically, this the the mansion that you're in is um, there's because you're a ghost. You can kind of wisp in and out of the vents, you know, in the house, and that will whisk you away to a room that's like on the far side of the mansion. And a huge part of the the challenge of this game is learn not only learning the layout of the mansion, but memorizing where certain vents will will take you. You know, um, and that is really really difficult uh, to do as you progress into the game because when you get 
when you've basically collected 75% of everything, um, that 25% of things that are remaining in order to move on are really hard to get, you know, because you, you're just backtracking and, and going over um, already treaded territory several times. And what my son and I had to do is we actually found an amazing map online that somebody had done where they'd lay, basically like stitched together every screen in the game into like this huge map. And I was able to at work, you know, print it out like in a, on a, like a huge plotting paper kind of thing. So we're talking about like a map that's like four feet by four feet. And so my son and I would just like sit on top of this map and we'd be looking at like these tiny rooms and seeing like where each vent led to, you know, and it have like lines drawn from like one vent all the way over to like the, the far east corner of the house, you know. And we were using that map and, and I, I was going to say, I'll, I'll include it in the show notes. I'll send it to Peter so he can include it in the show notes if anybody's willing or, or wanting to play this game. But I think that the map helps a lot because without it, we just would never have, you know, I don't think gotten very far. And with that, we have a solid contender for dad of the year. <laughs> I don't. I don't know what's more impressive that you printed out a four by a four foot by four foot map for a licensed uh, Saturn game, or the fact somebody made the time to do that for a Saturn game that's licensed. Well, I mean, the sprite work in this game is actually really good. The graphics are beautiful. I, I mean, I haven't played the PlayStation version, but most of the walkthroughs online are like PlayStation footage, and I will say that I think that the Saturn version is a little darker it kind of looks a little darker so like on my crt i had to like put it in super bright mode you know just so that we could kind of see because the contrast of this house it's really dark and sometimes you just can't even see like certain things that you're supposed to interact with because it's so dark so i kind of had to boost the gamma on my xrgb so that we could actually like see some of the finer detail but that said the the sprite work is amazing in this game i would say the graphics and the ambiance are probably the thing that kept me coming back but yeah it's definitely more of a kid's game recently i've been playing a, a couple games for halloween i've been playing house of the dead on the saturn and the uh resident evil 2 remake on the ps4 so i've been playing the house of the dead so for the you that don't know or living under a rock a little bit a like on game where you play uh was it g and rogan right so you just go through the mansion you go through these different locales fight all these tough as nails bosses yeah it's an amazing light gun game i really enjoy it i've been playing that a little bit so that that's been a lot of fun uh i still suck at it i can only get to the was it the boss rush mode at the end when you before you fight the magician and i always pretty much die so if i if i don't play with unlimited credits it's kind of like i can't get that far into it I think the boss that kills me the most is the um, the Gargoyle-esque enemy on, I think it's stage four. That's the guy that flies, like, all over the place, right? Yeah, and with the with the Saturn and the lag and the frame issues on the Saturn, it makes it almost impossible to play that level. I mean, it's hard enough in the arcades, but with all the lag and shooting all the enemies, it's, like, nearly impossible to play without losing at least a couple credits. So yeah, I've been playing that and just Resident Evil 2 remake. It's not Saturn related, but you know, Sam did the video on the origins of that where it was actually developed on the Saturn in some form or another. And the remake's really good. I've been really enjoying that. Loved it so much. I've played it, beat it twice, and I'm playing it again for Halloween. So I'm really excited to get through that, you know, experience the story again. I think it's probably my favorite Resident Evil 
Well, well, Resident Evil 2 is my favorite Resident Evil in general, and the remake just makes it even better. One game that I talked about a little bit last year that really doesn't get enough love is Swagman. So this is a PAL-only release on the Saturn. It is available on the PlayStation uh, in North America for much, much cheaper. But who cares about PlayStation? So the Saturn game, uh, I really want to just give it a quick shout-out because it's an experience that I think uh, more people should have than... Uh, than have had so far so the game is really kind of like a zombies ate my neighbors sort of idea Um, and and it's not so much that it's scary but I would say that it's more macabre so it's it's got like this Tim Burton sort of vibe to it it's you know it, it sort of alternates between sort of calm and happy to really sort of downright scary at times and and the soundtrack was done by Nathan McCree and he's the fellow that did the soundtrack for the original Tomb Raider. So he did Tomb Raider first, then he did Swagman. And that soundtrack is absolutely sensational. I really, really would put it in my, for example, I don't know, top 10 video game soundtracks that I've listened to anyways. It's that good. He's got just amazing themes throughout his different uh, tracks. And, and luckily, it's all Red Book Audio. So you get some really high quality fidelity as you're playing the game. And it just, it really lends to the atmosphere of the game. So I know not not very many people have tried Swagman. I did an article on Swagman uh, last year. So it's up on our website, SegaSaturnShiro.com. And if you do have an opportunity to either get an original disc or any other means to play the game, I really encourage it. It's, it's really a fun game to get into uh, right around Halloween time. Yeah, I tried playing Swagman, and I, like, sucked at it completely and just wrote it off like I do with all those sort of games. But I should probably give it a retry, though. It, it seems interesting. You know, I I didn't know that I would enjoy it, but I completely fell in love with it. So it's, to me, it's a hidden gem, and nobody really talks about this game. And, you know, it's not perfect. It does have its flaws, but for what it is, uh, especially as a Halloween game, it's fantastic. And like I said, that soundtrack, sensational. Yeah, I think it's more popular because it was released in the, the EU and in Japan, right, only? Actually, not even in Japan, just uh, just in Europe. On top of the Saturn not being popular in Europe, I mean, just in general, a game like that, that probably is pretty obscure in the first place. It probably didn't get a lot of play. Uh, yep, you're right. That's true. So, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's definitely something I should definitely give a try to. I think we all should, actually. So that's definitely one of my list as well. Swagman. I just like the name. I don't know much about it, but I mean, now I, now I do. But the name is pretty great. So there's another game that you guys probably have heard of, but have probably heard more or less bad reviews on. It's uh, Corpse Killer. And this is a game that came over to the Sega CD and the Sega CD 32X before hitting the Saturn as a graveyard edition. And uh, this was produced by Digital Pictures, which did a lot of those FMV video games uh, at the time. And it didn't really score very well. When people were playing it, they thought it was pretty garbage. But the thing to remember about this game in particular is this is based on a B-rate type horror movie scenario. It's supposed to be bad. It's supposed to be so bad that it's amazing. And I feel like as what it is trying to do, it accomplishes this pretty well. Uh, You're... You're basically a marine that is dropped onto an island. You're bit by a zombie, and you're more or less killing all these zombies and uh, trying to take out the main uh, bad guy uh, at the end of the game. The way you do this is absolutely hilarious. 
now the gameplay is real simple. It's kind of one of those where you're moving the cursor around to shoot the zombies on the screen. And uh, in the backdrop, it's a FMV video with uh, these zombies superimposed on top of it. So it's a real simple gameplay, but you really play it more for the story and the experience than you do the gameplay itself. It's just done, in my opinion, in a way that's really fun. Now, the difference that you'll get between the Sega CD 32X and the um, the Saturn version is basically you are in a really small box on the Sega CD and 32X version, whereas you have full screen on the um, on the Saturn, it looks a lot better. Uh, you have difficulty settings, and I think there's even a new animation they put in for the zombies where they jump at you a little bit better uh, at in front of the screen. It looks like they're coming right at you. It's definitely something I recommend, especially if you're a B-rate movie fan. I'm going to try this out later. This sounds like a fun one. So fun fact about this game. So it's, as you mentioned, Ben, it's on multiple platforms. The Saturn version is the only version out of all the versions available that does not support the light gun. Every other version supports the light gun. And to me, that's almost a criminal flaw with this game. But, you know, you know it's a good game because if you look at the U.S. box, it clearly says right on the front that it is one of the top 20 games of the year that year. So you are getting high quality with this game for sure. Wow. That's, well, knowing the Saturn in the U.S., that's probably a, <laughs> uh, that's probably about 20 games that were released that year. <laughs> probably. Another thing that's interesting to note about this game, it's one of the ones that got picked up by Limited Run Games and was also released on the PS4. Ooh, fascinating. Really? Do you know if they used the the PS4's uh, sensor, light sensor on that? Or at least the PS Move? I See, I didn't get the PS4 version. Um, the ones that I've got, I have the, um, the Saturn version as well as the 32X version, uh, but I have not actually tried the PS4 version. I, I would like to try it out and see what the differences are. It probably would have to be the de definitive version because the Saturn one doesn't have the light gun support, and it's like, why bother if it doesn't, you know? Right, right. But, you know, having played a little bit of it myself, it's just like you said, Ben, it is so bad that it's good. Like, it's one of those games where you're looking and you're thinking, what in the world were they thinking? But then you realize that that's the whole, you know, that's part of the appeal, that's the charm. It's meant to be bad, and it's so bad that it's good. It's still not Area 51, though. That will always be a jewel. That is a crown jewel of the arcades, and it should never leave arcades. It's so bad, man. I think a lot of those FMV games, where they're so bad that they're good, it was kind of a, a tale of the times, sort of like with Virtual Highlight, in that I, you know, I don't think they put all those graphics in necessarily because they, like, maybe they themselves thought it looked good, but because they, they did it because they could, you know. Oh, we can put real people in this, so let's just, let's go ham, let's go all out put as many of this crap in here as we can and just just see how it does so have you been playing any uh halloween games nick i i did play dark seed i decided to go with one that was a little lesser known i i found it on youtube that's kind of how i first discovered it uh a couple of years ago or so and it is it is weird so the background of it real quick it, it was a point and click pc game made in 1992 but was brought over to saturn exclusively for japan in 95 uh, developed by Cyber Dreams, it was localized in Japan by Gaga Communications, which according to Bloomberg, they just specialize in bringing in overseas media, mainly movies. Uh, they're headquartered in Nagasaki. So Darkseed is uh, it's based on the artwork by H.R. Geiger. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. 
but uh, you have seen his work if you've seen the movie Alien or Alien vs. Predator. He, he did the concept artwork for the, the xenomorph alien. His artwork is known for being very disturbing. It's mainly based in this idea of a cross-species between people and machines and this sort of biomechanical hybrid species type of stuff. His artwork is very NSFW, so if you want to look it up, probably go wait, wait till you go home for that. Uh, it probably will not arouse you, I don't think. Uh, but <laughs> it's definitely uh, humans and machines coming together in this really weird, disturbing, psychological horror. Unfortunately, the artist, uh, Mr. Geiger, is no longer with us. He passed sometime in 2014, but he was old, so he he'd lived a, seemed to live a decent life. Kind of reminds me of like, David Cronenberg sort of stuff, too. Sure, yeah. The opening of Dark Seed really kind of says a lot about his artwork. It starts out with some establishment shots of this mansion that some like advertising executive moved to, who's your main character. It cuts to a nightmare he's having, where this like phallic machine cuts open a slit into his forehead and ejaculates a gray, massive alien splooge into his skull. And I'm guessing this is the titular Dark Seed that the name of the game speaks of. <laughs> <laughs> the, main, <laughs> the main character that's that's amazing oh yes yes, yes. And, and and while this is while this cutscene's playing out you're listening to this awful ear-splitting high-pitched chiptune music that's like kind of adds to how disturbing it is and then you're the voice acting's hilariously bad too your guy wakes up and he says Man, something to the effect of, man, I gotta stop having these nightmares. Now I have a monster headache. Which I'm guessing <laughs> alludes to the alien splooge that just got shoved into his skull. Um, wow. And wow. so the, the game centers around uh, uh, your, your main character. You, you point and click. It's, it's, all, it's very text heavy and it's obviously in Japanese. But since the game was made in the Western world by English speakers, all of the voice acting is in English. So it's a sort of similar experience uh, in terms of being able to understand the game, Saturn fans who've played Deep Fear, or who've played the Japanese version of Deep Fear, obviously you're going to need a guide. There are some things of text that you'll need to read. There are some puzzles that are kind of hard to understand. So it'll be helpful to have a guide, but you'll be able to understand all the dialogue and soak in the horrible, horrible voice acting. And that high-pitched music I was talking about, that type of awful high-pitched chiptune music plays throughout the entire game. It seemed like it was composed by the guy who did the crazy bus music. Um, but great the great bad... soundtrack, by the way. If you guys yes. don't know Crazy Buses, <laughs> look up the theme. Probably the greatest soundtrack in all of video game history. It's so good. But the awful music and awful voice acting are so bad that it, it's, it's almost like it was intentional. It pairs really well with how disturbing the artwork in the game is. And um, I didn't get a chance to play a lot of the game just due to real life scheduling reasons that were unexpected, but the game centers around your uh, account executive main character sort of exploring the parallel universe dark world where all these biomechanical alien species things, basically this is where H.R. Geiger's artwork comes out, uh, him, you know, learning about the connection between these two parallel universes and uh, ultimately getting to the end point of the game. I don't want to spoil too much, of course, because it's a, mainly a story-based game. But, uh, but yeah, that's what it is. It's, it's, you, you, need a, you need a like point-and-click adventures to get to it. You'll need a guide, and you'll need to be able to stomach some really weird-looking artwork. But the experience is not like any other I've had on the Saturn. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a very, 
very bizarre psychological horror game and i would only recommend it if you you're feeling something different and you're feeling something really creepy um uh, yeah it's also that's on, dark uh, i'm looking online it's also on ms dos if you guys want to play it in english yes yes it was it was originally a pc game uh so yeah if you don't want to play the saturn version yeah you can do that too so I'd probably recommend just playing the dos version i mean unless you want to tank through the translation on the Saturn you right. see guides. It, it'd be more easy to stomach the PC version, the MS-DOS version for sure. Um, it's definitely not an easy stomach from what I've heard from you though. <laughs> yeah, you'll, you might get a monster headache after playing it. Yeah, let's hope not. This has got to be the, the most bizarre, you know, obscure Saturn game we've ever talked about. So, yeah, well done, Nick. <laughs> Thank you. It was it was a weird one for sure, and I'll, I'll probably finish it. I didn't get the time to finish it, unfortunately, but it is relatively short. All right. Hopefully you don't get a monster headache from playing Hopefully it. I don't. Hopefully I don't get any nightmares about machines shoving liquid into my, my brains or anything like that. So... One thing we'd like to discuss on the podcast is that we had several of our members go to PRGE this year. For you guys that don't know, Portland Retro Gaming Expo, which is uh, the biggest uh, retro gaming convention in North America. What did you guys think? Did you guys have a good time? Uh, this was an amazing trip. Uh, this was my second year. Kay's been there for a very long time. And um, I had a really good time. Just it, it, Much better than last year. And Last year wasn't wasn't horrible saying at all it was i had a blast last year but this year was even better it's just it's one of those shows that's getting better every year there's more people showing up a lot of good stuff to look at a lot of great games to play oh it's just amazing yeah i had uh, that was my first time at uh, prg so first of all it was really cool to have three of us shiros on hand so myself ben and Kay. um i'd never met either ben nor Kay uh in person and so it was really nice to do that and, you know, just to echo what Ben was saying, you know, it was a great uh, experience. It was a huge show, tons of people. It was almost like a mecca for retro gaming. So it was just really wonderful. Uh, we got a chance to see a lot of fans. It was really, I have to admit, it was surreal to see some of our fans walking around wearing Sega Saturn Shiro t-shirts. That was really cool. Uh, we also ran into a couple of uh, former guests of the show. So... We had Steve Wright Jr. as well as the immortal John Hancock that we interacted with. Steve and Kay actually had a, a bout of uh, Street Fighter 03 at our Shiro booth, so that was really cool. Other things that uh, sort of stood out for me is uh, we got to hang out with the good folks uh, from Retrobit. And we got to hands-on try some of the uh, forthcoming wireless controllers. So I'll quickly give you uh, how I felt uh, they handled. And so, so if you have the wired controllers from Retrobit, the wireless ones are virtually the same with a couple of minor differences. And, and the first thing I noticed is that the buttons, the shoulder buttons, really click a lot better now. So uh, in talking with the uh, guys at Retrobit, they ended up working with Sega to try to bring the feel of the shoulder buttons to, you know, to be closer to what it was originally. And they really did a really nice job. So, so you know, that's one improvement in the wireless controllers. And then the other sort of difference in it is there is a slight bulge in the back of the mold for the uh, wireless controllers to accommodate the lithium battery that's got to be inside. 
the controllers. But by slight, I do mean it's really, really, you know, hardly noticeable. It's nothing at all like how the uh, the original IR controllers from the 90s are much, much thicker. It's nothing like that at all. These controllers are really light. They respond well, and we're completely looking forward to them. We also got a chance to, to see, touch, and handle the pink controllers. So these are the limited edition ones that uh, uh, Limited Run is helping Retrobit to put out. They're just like the wired controllers. The the difference is that they're pink, and they actually in you know when in real life they look quite a bit nicer than they do in the photos uh, on the order pages online. So they're clear, they're see through, and they just they look super cool, and it's for a good cause. So you know really happy uh, that Retrobit and Limited Run Games are doing that. Yeah. Um. To speak to the wireless controllers for the Bluetooth one, I didn't notice the. I couldn't find a bulge on the back of it. It seems like that one doesn't have any, but maybe due to the way that the pad needs to be uh, configured, uh, the PCB-wise, maybe it is required on the Saturn version. But uh, I've only been able to play with the Bluetooth one, but we'll uh, I'll get back to you guys once I get the wireless Saturn ones in hand. All right, so the bulge on the Bluetooth ones, I can kind of tell you this. It's... It literally is very, very slight. Uh, just basically uh, where the back of the uh, uh, controller is, uh, you you kind of feel if you you really have to almost compare it to an original controller to kind of feel that bowing in the back, and that's really what that bulge is is where the um, where that battery is internally. When you're holding the controller normally, you just it, it's very comfortable. You don't feel it. It's uh, and like Peter says, uh, the uh, compared to the IR controllers from back in the day. Those IR controllers feel like chunks compared to these, and uh, so these Retrobit controllers are extremely comfortable. How are the la- how was the latency on those? Like, was it pretty noticeable lag, or was it actually fairly responsive and not really something that got in the way at all? Like, could I play a shmup? Could I play like a intense fighter with it without feeling like I'm missing out on a wired controller? My big test for these kind of things is uh, playing a high-speed game, kind of like a shoot-'em-up. So when I tried one of the games that they had there, uh, shoot-'em-up that I was playing, I didn't notice any lag in the amount of time it took me to make the attacks on the ship. So I could definitely maneuver around uh, in basically a bullet hell. So I think it's really good. That's good. That's good to hear. Especially on that old hardware, it's really good to hear that they're able to get that down and have it be that responsive. So, I mean, so far everything's looking super good with these. The packaging is really slick too. The outer box uh, is done in a style of, uh, you know, regular Saturn hardware. So again, it'll fit right along with the rest of your hardware uh, boxes. And then that hardware slips off, or that box slips off, and then you've got this... um, plastic case that sort of opens up and you've got the controller that sits inside as well as two dongles the first one being of course for the saturn and the second one is a usb dongle so that you can use it on other usb compliant devices yeah no i that box is probably one of my favorite things about it i mean well minus the controller of course it's just a really nice matte feeling box that slides the controller out it feels nice and like I guess it feels like a premium sort of product in that case, just having that alone on there. Yeah, they did a really nice job, absolutely. But yeah, no, uh, speaking on that bulge, I just actually checked the controller. I can see what you're talking about, but it's barely noticeable. Like, I use a lot of Saturn controllers, and I didn't notice it until they pointed out because it's so slight. Yeah, no worries on that. Like, it's it's like barely noticeable at all. If not, that I didn't even you- notice it, so. Yeah, that tells you quality and design right there. But yeah, no, I love the entire controller design, the the packaging of it. I actually like it better than the wired ones almost. 
as blasphemous as that is, even though it's not as authentic as the original Saturn, the Saturn controllers, it just, I kind of prefer that. I don't know. Maybe that's well, just me talking, though. But you know what? For 2019, Pat, I mean, wireless is the way to go. So I'm glad that, first of all, we've got wireless pads. And second of all, that they're that good quality. And for me, just the fact that they've even improved the shoulder buttons, I mean, to me, this, this probably will be the controller of choice. So they did a really nice job. Is there a price point for these yet? Do we know how much they're going to run? The price point on there, um, on the Castlemania Games website, the Bluetooth uh, pad is $29.99, and the uh, 2.4 gigahertz with the dongles is going to be $34.99. It's not too bad. Yeah, it's not too bad, especially for wireless controllers that are good of quality. Because from what I understand, it works. It looks like it's set up for the uh, Switch as well, so... It's probably going to be a good D-pad for, like, retro games. Nice. I didn't realize that. So I could play some retro games on the Switch with the same thing. All right, and for this cast, we have a very special guest, and that is Mr. Ken Lowe. Ken has a very unique role in the Saturn story, and we are very excited to have him here. Welcome to the cast, Ken. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. So just before we start, maybe if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, you know, what you do and uh, your involvement with Sega. Sure. I'm actually currently I'm uh, working at Apple. But prior to that, I spent many years on the on the agency side. I have a have a design background and uh, spent a lot of years in advertising and design. And so my connection to Sega primarily is through the work that I did through an agency called the Mednick Group, uh, where we launched Sega Saturn. We also did a ton of advertising for Sega CD, 32X, a lot of packaging. So we were, we, you know, Sega was definitely one of our big clients, and it was great to work for an industry that I also enjoyed as well. Did you grow up playing video games? I did. And I mean, I had a, my brother and I shared an Apple IIe. And uh, we, of course, you know, did it uh, mostly for gaming. We, we did a little programming, of course, but uh, we played all the little uh, Apple games. We also had a, uh, my parents had a, had a Windows a PC and we played games on that. From a console perspective, the first one actually was this, this uh, a tank game that was literally just a tank game that you, you'd plug into your television and it had uh, four joysticks. Each player controlled two joysticks for you know, pushing both of them forward for forward, pushing them pull, pull back for left for reverse, and then the right one forward for turning left, the left one forward for turning right, and it was it was pretty basic, but it was a tank shooting game that was a lot of fun. And then I you know most of the time uh, when the consoles came out, I think I, I spent more time with PlayStation than anything. It's ironic that we we worked for Sega, but at home I, I played with PlayStation. <laughs> no, yeah, interview yeah. <laughs> over. Yeah. We had, uh, we of course had all the consoles um, in the office, and you know, this I had to, uh, you know, we got had a chance to play all the games and get get to know the consoles, just because we were doing ads for them and packaging for them. But uh, at home, I, I just played PlayStation. So I'm kind of curious, though. So you were talking about the Apple IIe, yeah, uh, which came out in the '80s, and then you were talking about how you were playing a PlayStation in the office, but. We've skipped over a whole generation of the Sega Genesis and the Nintendo. And yes. uh, so were, were you a Nintendo fan or were you a Sega fan back in that day? Um, 
actually, it was, I would probably say it was more Atari for me. We did not have a lot of money growing up. So, you know, the computer was a big luxury. My friends had the consoles and Atari was the console that I played. Periodically, there would there would be one friend that had a Nintendo and we would play Nintendo. But for the most part, I, I think I'd say I grew up on Atari. Um, 2600? The... 5200? No, it was the... 5800? I don't even, I can't even remember. <laughs> Can you describe the controller? It was, the, the, the controller was a black controller with a red button. Uh, 2600. That had to have been 26, yeah. 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 I mean, your, your, your classic Atari, I guess. Is, right. Is... So your portfolio spans multiple ad agencies. You mentioned you're working with Apple now. Obviously, you have spanned a couple decades now of different experience and working with notable clients. And I can also see just looking at the body of your work that, you know, you've had a progression and gone through different changes in your design sense. But uh, mm -hmm. I'm just wondering what made you choose design and marketing as a career path in the first place? And how did that path lead you to working for Sega? That's a great question. We, I actually had no idea there was even a business known as design when I was growing up. I, I went to college as a business major took my first econ class and realized, oh my God, I just do not want to do business for the rest of my life. So I went to the uh, career center at uh, Cal State Long Beach, did a bunch of tests and they said, hey, you should try graphic design. And uh, when I went to visit the, the design department, that's when I sort of realized, gosh, this is something I've been doing my entire life. I've been, you know, I've been drawing logos on my peachy folders and you know, really paying a lot of attention to design in general, but it just just never occurred to me that you could you can earn a living in design. So that was kind of the beginning. I, I ended up uh, joining the design department. I got my degree uh, in uh, advertising and design, and went to work pretty much right out of school. Started as a designer, moved my way into art director, and did some advertising. Spent many years as a creative director, and then I, at once the the dot-com era sort of exploded, all the all of the clients kind of went away. And so I, I ended up going client side at that point. But getting back to the, you know, how did I get to work on Sega? It was through this uh, agency called the Metna Group. I joined them pretty much fresh out of school. They had already had Sega as a client. You know, I, I, I started mostly just doing logos for, for games and packages, and then uh, very quickly moved into the advertising. Uh, side of the business and um, you know I, I honestly can't even remember how many ads I, I did it was uh, some of the most interesting work for me because I considered myself a gamer at the time and um, so I really loved to love the space and I just love to do stuff that I had a passion for now is it true that you essentially physically worked at the Sega of America headquarters working on Sega's branding you know, I'm not sure where that came from because um, that's not true. I spent very little time at their headquarters. In fact, I, I don't even remember if I've ever stepped foot in their headquarters. I spent most of my time back at the at the agency, uh, which was in Culver City, California. Um, so I'm not exactly sure where that came from. <laughs> gotcha. Well, good to clear that up. And yeah. then would you be able to tell me what it was like working with them to word it weirdly, a non-physical standpoint, yeah. you're, you're yeah. kind of yeah. separated from their offices and sure. I'm assuming communicating through mainly email yeah. and phone and stuff like that. What, what was that like? And what was working with them like in that, uh, with that type of environment? 
Yeah. So keep in mind, this is, this is very early in my career. So I was young, I was just a, you know, I was just a kid. And uh, the, so I didn't really have face to face interactions with the clients. There were, there were other folks in the company whose job it was, was to interface with the clients. And my job was to sit back in the office and do the work. <laughs> so yeah. the, the briefs would come, I would sit with the, with the creative directors uh, I would understand the briefs, um, and then you know me along with a bunch of other designers, we would just get cranking on stuff. Um, we probably would generate a ton of work that that would never see the light of day, and sometimes that's the, the those are some of my most uh, my favorite ads or my favorite logos are ones that never actually saw the light of day because ultimately things get changed and. You know, people give feedback and, you know, all, before you know it, the, the, it's just a shadow of what you kind of imagined it to be in the first place. So, so I didn't really deal with the clients directly uh, with Sega. I, I was more behind the scenes working on the, on the ads and the, and the packages. Gotcha. Was Sega generally easy to, to work with in that regard? I feel like, you know, from my perspective, I feel like it was because while we did a lot of revisions, um, that's pretty much par for the course in, in any design company. You, you always did a lot of revisions. And I think the, the measure for whether or not it's a good client is how much stuff actually gets produced. And, you know, we produced a ton of stuff at, at the Mendel Groups for Sega, uh, as well as for other uh, gaming companies as well. But uh, Sega was probably one of the largest clients we had. So, But in terms of the environment, like, did you guys have product lying around yeah. did you have a lot of like sega arcade units or systems that you were encouraged to play to kind of familiarize yourself with the culture and like what they were going for definitely we had a we had a conference room uh it was kind of a, a weird pie-shaped conference room but it, it had uh, glass on all sides and basically a, a gaming setup inside there so any i, I spent probably half my time in in that room either playing the games or uh concepting for ads my my copywriting partner and i would would often just work in that room uh so we could surround ourselves with the product um and then we would just stick up you know sketches on the you know on the glass walls just tape them up and you know go through the ideas and uh you know ultimately we would pick the ones that we would sketch up and and uh you know, at that point, then you move back to the computer and, and, you know, put it together and then ship it off to the account executives and they would go talk to the clients. And you mentioned that there's a ton of stuff that, uh, you, you know, you, you guys produced that never saw the light of day. Whatever happened to all that stuff? Like, is it, did all of it get uh, passed on to Sega and then they did whatever they did with it? Or did that stay with you guys? I think there was definitely an, an archive at the Mednik Group, you know, just folders, huge file folders of stuff that both was produced and was just presented. I think Sega technically did own the rights to all that work because we were, we were work for hire. They certainly wouldn't have, uh, you know, shown it to anybody because that was, according to them, the rejects, the stuff that they didn't want. Right. Um, but we would, you know, I think occasionally a designer would put something in their portfolio. You know, we would definitely have the, 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 the envelopes folders in the, in the office that we would sometimes go back and reference because we would, we'd be working on a new ad and we'd think, Hey, wait a minute, there was some other thing that we did, or maybe a logo we did for another company that we felt, you know, could inspire 
another project, we'd be able to go back to those archives and, and sort of s sort through those a bit. Wonder if they still exist to this day. I very much doubt it because uh, the, the Medna group is no longer. It actually turned into one of the first interactive advertising agencies that merged both print and digital competencies. And it turned into an agency called Think New Ideas, of which I ended up working for as well. But, you know, I think once the Medna group stopped, a lot of the stuff that was the work, uh, I, I don't know what they did with it, but I, I, I got to believe it's not stored anywhere <laughs> at this point because it was, it was a lot of stuff. Now, I know you were mentioning that you don't remember the game specifically that you were doing the art and designs for, but do you happen to recall any of your first or early design projects for Sega? Yeah, I think the, the, the ones that I remember the most would be some of the Sega CD ads. Uh, we did an ad for Tomcat Alley. Uh, we did an ad for Eternal Champions. Um, and then we did a bunch of stuff for the, the CDX and 32X. Uh, that was all done all prior to Saturn. This was all print? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm curious. I had, um, th you said that, that the Mednet group went back before you, um, even back to the Genesis. And I'm just wondering, when the Genesis launched in, I believe it was 89, their design language was very reminiscent of the Master System. They had kind of like this black background with the white grid almost like a math plotting paper but then they started moving over to this new design language with these diagonal stripes on the boxes mm -hmm. right. was the mednik group responsible for that change that shift that carried on through the sega cd and then the saturn and then was dropped with the dreamcast i guess but yeah but it carried on with the 32x those diagonal stripes yeah, I'm, I'm definitely familiar with the diagonal stripes, but I don't know if they were there prior to Mednik taking over or if, or if perhaps Magnet created that pattern. I, I got you. I, I remember it very vividly because <laughs> mm -hmm. we, yeah. we saw it all over the place, you know, pretty just, much all the, just, yeah. Exactly, because I, I noticed that in the 90s when Sega was like trying to support so many different consoles, that was kind of the one thing that would, on store shelves, kind of key you into the fact that that was a Sega product, yeah. you know? Yeah. Those, those yeah. diagonal stripes, they kind of unified their entire product line. Yeah. What did you think about Sega's add-ons? Basically, uh, the Sega CD or the 32X, um, did you feel like they were products that, at the time, Sega was supporting strongly, or did you feel like they were just kind of milking their late success or even putting the aging hardware on life support in order to stay competitive? Yeah. Yeah, I think the um, the add-ons were sort of, at least from, from our perspective, being the, the agency, it felt like a move toward trying to make sure the, the platforms were evolving and not staying uh, too stagnant because things were, you know, the CD was you know, coming into play with a lot more capacity. So cartridges were no longer being used. Um, so that, that, you know, Sega Genesis with the CD add-on seemed like a logical step for them. The, the CDX actually was a product that I thought was one that I really wanted because I liked the portability of it. I liked how small it was. Of course, you know, being able to play uh, music CDs at the time also. And, you know, there were, there were not very many small music players. <laughs> so the Sega... Uh, CDX, uh, the size of the CDX was about, you know, maybe a little bit on the large side for CD players, but it was, a, it was about what you would expect to be, you know, walking around with. So it felt, it felt like it, it was just a, a, a natural evolution of the business. 
Now, I'm actually kind of curious, uh, from a designer standpoint on making ads for these add-ons, uh, I feel like that would be a really nice challenge to try to create something that uh, basically is really enticing and uh, very unique uh, circumstances in the regard of the 32X and the CD yeah. and yeah. how to promote them. Of course, you know, you're, 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 you're dealing with gamers who are, you know, often adolescent and have a kind of a, a silly sense of humor. So one of my favorite ads was uh, for the 32X, which had a kid kind of looking, uh, eyeing these two products, the, the, the 32X kind of going down on top of the, uh, the Sega Genesis. And, and the headline was, Mommy, what are those two Sega machines doing? <laughs> that, that was one of my favorite ads because it was you know it, it, of course played to played to the audience we could have some fun with the with the notion of hey this is a thing that mounts on another thing and you know sega was always irreverent they were they were never one to shy away from anything that you know by certainly by today's standards would would potentially be you know highly controversial but <laughs> they they and neo ns and k uh, for the Neo Geo, they both had a history of innuendo, like yes. a lot of innu yes. <laughs> innuendo in their ads. Yeah, and sure. they they absolutely encouraged us to do that. So you know, there were many ads that we did that you know would maybe get run once or twice, and then they'd have to be pulled because <laughs> they were like, like the naked lady. Yeah, that was that was one of mine as well. Not not yeah. one of my proudest <laughs> proudest moments, but yes, I, I did wow. do that one. Wow. That gets tossed around on like non-video game related <laughs> social media feeds from time to time. Yeah. Like that, that one's had some traction. Yeah, that's legendary. The thing about the the thing, <laughs> I, I did, I did, I did actually, I did the photo shoot. So um, of course, <laughs> that one. Um, <laughs> yeah. The the uh, the funny thing about that one, the what the reason why I felt that worked uh, at the time was the whole tagline, the the positioning was nothing else matters. You know, you are so interested in, in gaming that nothing else matters. And, and that was basically the that concept was like, OK, these guys, everyone is so fixated with the screenshots that you don't even see that there's this, this beautiful naked woman, you know, behind <laughs> the, the screenshots. But of course, that was not the case, but uh, it, it, it was a fun way to sort of get people to pay attention. Yeah, we are still talking about it to this yeah. day. So that, that was great. <laughs> Okay, let's talk a little bit about the uh, Saturn logo itself. Mm -hmm. So so obviously there was already a logo for the uh, Japanese market, but then it was changed for the Western market. So did Sega of America mandate or request the change? And did they give any reason for wanting a change? Yeah, you know what's really interesting to me is, uh, I and I, I, I got to believe my memory might be a little off here, but... I seem to recall that the Japanese version of the logo that we saw didn't actually look like the Japanese logo that they that they went to production with, because the Ooh. the 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 type uh, was this was definitely unchanged, but the mark, um, the, the the Saturn mark with the, the 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 cube with the S that's wrapped around it, I think that was derived from the work that we did for the U.S. Uh, and then just sort of flattened. Uh, for the Japanese market. But again, I, I could be completely wrong, but I, I honestly don't really remember seeing that mark, uh, the Japanese version of it, until after we had already finished our uh, Head for Saturn campaign. 
Do you recall around what time frame, like time period, you guys would have been working on on the logo? Like we, that would have been like '94, I'd say. Wow, see, that's okay. So that's quite possible then, because the machine launched in Japan in November of '94. So it's yeah. entirely possible that you know they looked at the uh, work that that you guys did and yeah. you know maybe made some adjustments there. Um, so, so tell me a little bit about the logo. So, like, what made you guys go for for that look? Like, I, I know that there are several designs that you guys sort of looked at, mm-hmm. um, and you know, how did you settle on what the current logo ended up being? They definitely, uh, you know, with the, with the three D graphics, uh, they definitely wanted something that felt dimensional. A lot of the earlier logo concepts that we that provided were more flat. Uh, which also is, if you ask most designers of the time, they would say you got to if if it doesn't work flat, it doesn't really work. And so you know a lot of the designs we did were just like black and white, flat logo designs, just trying to get the forms, get the shapes. Um, and then some of them we would we would draw flat, but just dimensionalize them a bit with the way that we would draw the lines and you know create highlights and shadows. But all again, all in black and white. Uh, but that was also the time when uh, computers were getting a little bit more sophisticated. And now all of a sudden you could do gradients really easily. And so there was a trend toward, you know, using gradients and, and you know, starting to, to do even logos in a much more dimensional way. So that was um, definitely a direction that they wanted to go. They wanted something that felt three-dimensional because the, you know, we were, they were talking about you know, three-dimensional like graphics for their for their new console, and um, it was just at the time a little bit more progressive than than most logos were um, the way logos were being designed back then. Yeah, that move in the late night, well, mid to late nineties towards even Apple did it. You know, where they yeah. want to really make everything look three-dimensional, and and then of course that died out. And yeah. it all goes in waves, and then yes. flat design comes back, and and now flat design has been around for a while, and yeah. and there are shifts in the industry. But um, it's interesting because I think that that logo that you ended up creating, it really is a classic. I mean, Sony's got their PlayStation logo; mm-hmm. uh, it's synonymous with that brand, and yep. then uh, yep. and then of course the Nintendo sixty four, uh, you know, moniker is is classic. Yeah. That, uh, but the, I feel like the Saturn logo really in my mind it's burned in my brain is like that that brand association <laughs> with this console that was kind of f- tragically failed in a way yeah, but at the yeah. same time it was it was kind of a dark horse you know yes and it was flattened for, uh to be printed on the console itself they mm-hmm. did kind of like that at&t logo where yeah where they use the just lines for the lines, gradient yeah. Mm-hmm. And it does look really class. It looks really classy, even in in a flat manner. But I'm just curious, like how you created it? Did you create it in like Illustrator, or was it like a 3D modeling program? There, there was no 3D modeling program available at the time. So, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think that was a it was a Photoshop. Illustrator also at cool. the time could not really do gradients. I mean, nowadays, uh-huh. Illustrator, you can you can do gradients really simply, but back then it was not that simple. So I, I used Illustrator to draw the shape, and then I brought it into Photoshop and put the dimension on it in Photoshop. Cool. So it is just Photoshop. Yeah. And a really old version of Photoshop. Yeah. Uh, if there were 3D programs around at the time we certainly weren't using them <laughs> we didn't uh-huh. we didn't we didn't have we didn't have the training to do full-on 3d 
work. So probably like Photoshop CS negative one or something. Probably something like that, yeah. Well, you did a much better job making it look 3D than the Japanese guys did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the thing that I couldn't figure out is why they, you know, the only thing I can think of is that they just wanted it to kind of match the color of the typography. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but like I said, I don't, I don't really remember seeing that Japanese version of the mark until, until after we had already finished <laughs> our stuff. The Sega CD logo, I notice, also kind of has like a Saturn looking, well, it has like the disc. Did uh-huh. you do the Sega, sorry, the Sega CDX? Uh, you were talking about the Sega CDX. Did you do the Sega CDX logo? No, the CDX logo was done by uh, another designer at the Mednik Group, an amazing designer by the name of Van Dorn. He and I went to school together and we worked uh, together, but uh, he's the guy that did that CDX logo, which I think is fantastic. I'm wondering if you t- had any uh, subconscious influence from that. <laughs> because I think that a lot in design, you know, we uh, yeah. we take influence from things sometimes even subconsciously. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, there... And we, we would definitely pass around ideas. He, he and I just, we sat across from each other. So we, I, I, it's very safe to say we both influenced each other. He would look at my stuff and give me pointers. I would look at his stuff and give him pointers. So it was a, it was pretty, a pretty good collaboration between the two of us. And going from the logo to the ad campaigns, it's our understanding you had a pretty direct hand in that head for Saturn ad campaign. Is that right? That's correct. I uh, worked with a copywriter by the name of Peter Thornburg, one of my best friends in the entire world at the, at, as well. He's the one that came up with the headline and, the, and uh, we kind of together came up with the, the concept of bald people with rings on their, around their heads. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's, very, it, it's definitely bizarre. And I, I look back at it now and I, I, I think it's still really weird. <laughs> and I, and I don't... You know, in my mind, again, 3D at the time, it wasn't that mature. So the way that it was all rendered with the globes floating around, I don't particularly, looking back at it now, I don't, I don't think it was done very well. It was just a quirky campaign. I'm, I'm proud of the fact that we kind of stole this one away from Sega's primary uh, advertising agency, Goodby Silverstein and Partners. They're one of the best agencies in the world. They were definitely a company that I aspired to go work for at one point. And um, the fact that we got the print component of the launch, I think was uh, a proud moment for all of us there. Nice. It's kind of like a like a shift away from how they how they were in the Genesis days. It was more mm-hmm. more in your face, more kind of that early 90s tug and cheek, the attitude yeah. marketing, as many have called it. Yeah changing it to sort of the the bizarre and <laughs> like yeah. you said the bald people with rings around their heads was that was was that style shift kind of directed by Sega or is that more of a stylistic choice that you and your people had the had the freedom to make was that yeah. kind of a, a your idea thing I think it was our weird sense of <laughs> design and style that kind of brought that in and uh, I can still remember, I can still see in my mind some of the mock-ups that we did with just, you know, we would get stock photos of weird, quirky-looking people and <laughs> take, take their head off and, you know, put rings around them. And those were the comps that we would, we would show to, to Sega. And, uh, you know, they went for it. So that's pretty cool. What were, what were you guys trying to say, though? 
That's that's what I was wondering. Because so I know that Saturn, the tagline was, yeah. it's out there. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and and Sega was trying to communicate that it's out there, like you could go yeah. buy it. Yeah. And then you guys kind of took that and ran with it, like, and went way out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. So what were you trying to convey to in the market, you know, to consumers? I would say there were two things. And again, this is mostly Peter, the copywriter. Head for Saturn was, uh, you know, meant two different things. One was, hey, this thing is out there. Go get it. And uh, that's why that's why the it's out there was also, you know, in, in tandem with Head for Saturn. It was sort of a, a, a call to action to say this thing's out there. Go get it. Uh, but also the idea of somebody who has a head for the console is, and, you know, the literal interpretation of here's a head with Saturn rings around it was just something that we thought visually would just get people to pay attention. Uh, and, you know, I, we, we definitely believe some people would really hate it. And because uh, it's because it's weird. <laughs> people still talk to me about it today when they find out that I did that. And they're just like, that's the weirdest stuff I've ever seen for video games. Um, and I, I don't think I would disagree. It is. It's it's pretty out there. <laughs> well, the whole campaign was <laughs> the whole campaign yeah. was weird, including yes. the, the theater of the eye. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was Goodby. So the Theater of the Eye was done by Goodby Silverstein, their, their primary agency. What also was really weird to me is like usually when you launch something, you want everything to be completely tied together. But Sega made a decision to, to go with Mednick for print and stick with Goodby for their television. And they weren't totally connected. <laughs> we, did, we actually did do a couple of spots uh, at Mednick that... Um, sort of fall campaign where we started saying nothing else matters the, the it's out there was the launch line and then we we switched it to nothing else matters and at that time we did a couple of tv spots but for the most part goodby was there was their uh broadcast agency you'd said you weren't happy with how the globes and heads turned out what would you've done differently kind of looking back at it more than 20 years later yeah you know the i, I actually still remember the photographer was a good friend of mine and he was a really good photographer. He shot amazing black and white. His name was Eric Tucker. He's not shooting anymore. I think he owns a restaurant these days, but he was amazing with black and white portraiture. And so the, the outtakes for this shot were, they're really beautiful. I mean, they, they were really, they didn't really look like they belong with colorful screenshots of floating globes. And so I think to me, it's the juxtaposition of those things that, that in retrospect doesn't work so well. I, I would rather see the globes not be as colorful, a little bit more integrated with the with the scene, so it felt like it was, they were actually floating in that space. And then I would also uh, prefer a little less retouching on the model. I think the the retouching really changed a lot of the characteristics of her face. But it, you know, this was this was advertising, and they you know people want more, I guess, uh, beautiful people in advertising. But uh, you know, she she was beautiful, but she definitely had some very strong characteristics with uh, some wrinkles and some lines in her face that I thought were really interesting. And it actually made for photo was a lot more haunting and uh, interesting before the retouching, in my opinion. Was she the same one that starred in the theater of the eye? Was it that same actress? We didn't, we didn't do those, uh, the theater of the eye spots. Right. So they might, they may have, uh, certainly they knew who the models were that we used for print and uh, it's entirely possible. They went and, and hired her as well. There were two models that you guys used during uh, that particular campaign. There was so so the lady, um, I believe her name is Ion Sky. Yep. And then there was also Ice Cube. 
Yes. How did that happen? So the so the original lady for the Head for Saturn campaign was not Ioni Sky. That was uh, a model by the name of Hannah Sin. And that was the launch campaign. And then we came back in the fall and we did the Ice Cube uh, spread and also one with Ioni Sky because we started, we wanted to shift it toward more recognizable. We had, we had an idea that we a lot more campaigns with a lot more uh, celebrities. And uh, these were the first two, but I think it ended up, uh, <laughs> the, the console didn't do so well, so they didn't continue the advertising. In the last two. <laughs> yeah, right. Mm. That's right. Yeah. Ioni Sky, not a lot of people know, but Ioni Sky was also the wife of one of the Beastie Boys. I can't remember exactly which one, but um, she at the time was a pretty popular actress. She had done some indie films, and we didn't really want to go super mainstream. We just wanted someone who was like known enough but wasn't too popular. So, uh, but Ice Cube was sort of the opposite of that. Like everybody knew who he was. <laughs> he gave you that attitude. Yes. Yes. So personally, I liked the Head for Saturn ad campaigns. I, I liked the unconventional and thought they were really interesting uh, when I was growing up. And uh, what's also kind of interesting is they're not the only bald person campaigns for the Saturn. Mm -hmm. uh, over in Japan, they had this very bizarre campaign as well with this basically this bald elf uh, looking <laughs> character. And uh, did y'all's campaign uh, take any influence from that bizarre marketing campaign in Japan? Or do you think it may have even been the other way around? I, I have no idea because I, I, I don't know the dates of when they did that. And we certainly did not get a chance to see that before we did ours. It is pretty bizarre. It looks just like it looks like a cone head with Sega Saturn branding all over it. But um, we hadn't we hadn't seen that before. I kept I kept those ring props for a while after uh, for many years. Um, but I, I don't know what I've done with them since. But I. I just, uh, it was such a weird campaign that uh, I, sometimes I like to keep keepsakes from things that I've done. And, and the I had, I think, two sets of rings that, that I kept uh, just in a, in a uh, like a padded envelope for many, many years. But I don't know where they are now, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, I'm sure you guys would, would have uh, a lot more appreciation for them than, than just like sitting in my garage somewhere. So if I do have them, that's, I'm, I'm more than happy to send them out. That's amazing. You know, I think, I think... Ken, I think you would be forgiven, or the Medna group would be forgiven for going with such a bizarre campaign because the 90s were such a bizarre time. Like, uh, <laughs> as far as, far as off-the-wall marketing, uh, you know, you had the grunge era and you had, you know, alternative music kind of taking over and uh, you had, you know, a lot of youth kind of driving the market. I guess youth have always had a play in, in market, you know, but mm -hmm. they've had, they had... You know, the dot-com boom and everything. So it was a really crazy time. And I'm just kind of wondering, like, what was going on in the mid-90s industry to prompt that kind of off-the-wall marketing approach for a games console? I guess, you know, was there the sense that the market demographic was shifting towards these kids that grew up on the Atari or the Sega Genesis yeah. were growing up and they had, you know, more income and, and that this kind of marketing would appeal to them in some way? Yeah. I mean, I actually credit, I would definitely credit uh, Goodby Silverstein Partners more with the the shift in sort of the advertising perspective. They're the ones that came up with the original Sega Scream. I don't know if you guys, I'm sure you guys remember that. Right. 
And their advertising definitely influenced me, you know, because it was irreverent, it was fun, it got talked about, and you know, it was just it was always something that I think a lot of people that that worked in advertising would be like, oh man, if we could do if we could work on that kind of ad, it would be awesome. Uh, if we could get a client that would allow us to do those kinds of things, it would be awesome. So I, I think they actually had a lot to do with with shifting um, video game advertising with just the work that they did for Sega. Did the work that you did in print inform the theater of the eye or like the video portion or was it the other way around where you kind of took the lead from? Yeah. Was it Goodby that did the, that campaign, the yeah. video campaign? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was definitely Goodby that did that campaign. And were they the ones that let off? Um, I think we we were we were sort of in competition, you know, because Goodby typically what they they would do both the broadcast and the print advertising. So a lot of the earlier Sega advertising was done by Goodby, and so because we were in competition, we were typically not conversing with each other or sharing ideas with each other. Uh, the client on occasion would probably give direction to them that might have been influenced by the work we did or gave direction to us that might have been influenced by the work that they did. But we didn't really collaborate because we were we were competitors. So we, we pitched against them for that print portion of uh, the Saturn launch. So I think the influence, if there was any, it probably was just filtered through the client. And I honestly wouldn't know which direction, <laughs> which direction influenced which. Well, do you feel like at the time the um, the Head for Saturn campaign was considered a success based on whatever analytics you would have had to go off of? From the agency's perspective, absolutely, because it was a it was a big campaign with high visibility. You know, it, we had billboards all over downtown LA for three for E3 when the when the console was announced. And so it, it definitely, I think, got the buzz that we were expecting, but it didn't last very long. You know, we, we did the fall campaign, like I said, with, with Ice Cube and Ioni Sky. But after that, you know, it just kind of fell off and the, the console didn't didn't do too well. So, you know, you, it's hard to blame the advertising for that. But, it you know, I'm, I'm sure if it had more mass appeal advertising, it maybe potentially would have stuck around a little bit longer. You know, I think from our perspective, it, it was successful because we it, it, it generated a lot of conversation. Uh, but whether or not you could tie sales to it. Probably not. <laughs> but it did the job of letting people know that it was out there. Whether yeah. or not that whether or not that spurred them on to, to buy it at that three ninety nine yeah. price point. But yeah. it, it it got the job done. Yeah. And we did we did a couple of follow up ads for specific game titles, but it, it just wasn't it didn't last too long. Did you get to meet Ice Cube? I did. Yeah, we uh, did the photo shoot together. He was surprisingly the nicest guy you could ever meet. I mean, I, I, of course, I knew him, his, his persona. Going to meet him, I was a little nervous. You know, he's a big star, you know, guy with an attitude. Would, would we need to do anything special to keep him happy at the photo shoot? He was the nicest guy. <laughs> it was it was it was the it was so bizarre for me because, again, I was a kid. I was like in my, you know, probably mid 20s trying to get this big star to put rings around his head was like, I was like, <laughs> are you, is he going to think I'm a dork for wanting to do that? And I was super nervous, but he was, he was the nicest guy. Did he like it? Did he like the rings? I, yeah, I think he enjoyed, he, he thought it was okay. funny. You know, he had <laughs> yeah. a good chuckle, uh, but I, I, 
I would bet if you asked him now, he'd be like, I wish I never did that. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, a question that I kind of came up with earlier when we were talking about the, the naked lady ad, while we are talking about models used for the ads, do you happen to know who that, that, uh, that kind woman is and what her, like, where is she now? Kind did of what, yeah. Where did life take her since then? <laughs> well, I'm not sure where life took her since then, but that nice lady is actually Barbara Moore. You might recognize the name. She was Playboy Playmate of the Year. I think it was before. She was Playmate of the Year before the campaign, I, I believe. Right she on. also did another ad for us. There was a, a, a sort of a double game ad for... Virtua Fighter and uh, Battle Arena Toshinden, and she she dressed up as one of the one of the characters from from Toshinden for us, along with another model who dressed up as a character from oh, yeah. Virtua Fighter. Uh, oh, we wow. did that ad. I think that ad was one of the ones that didn't didn't last very long either in in circulation. It just sort of was out there, and then it got pulled. <laughs> <laughs> And then going from from the the models to the the packaging of mm -hmm. the console itself, mm -hmm. um, the the Saturn console's box had a very simple, clean, and classy look. It's yeah, the same look as its peripherals. When you look at the box for the mm -hmm. controllers, the arcade racer wheel, and and so, stuff like that. Yep. Did you help create those con the console box design and those other packaging design layouts that the many of the Western Saturn fans have sort of grown to appreciate yeah. since then? I did not. That was done by another designer. I believe her name was Amy Decker. Uh, she did that system. I, I think to the degree that, that I influenced it was really just about getting the, the logo artwork prepared for it, but I didn't actually do that packaging. But as you noted earlier, it has the same diagonal stripes, but with uh -huh. more of a subtle, I think it was like varnished on the box instead of like the red and gray that, that we typically would see in the the Genesis packaging, but they picked up on that same pattern. And I, I, I thought the packaging was really effective. It was very simple, very clean. Uh, looked at, at the brief was make it feel like an expensive product, and you know that's that's definitely what we were going for. Did you draw that font? I did. Yes, I did. The the, the Saturn <laughs> font you drew yeah. that. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that was done in Illustrator, and then again brought into Photoshop to to make three dimensional. That's crazy. Yeah, some you you have some other really mid '90s fonts that you used a lot, like the Bank Gothic. Bank Gothic, yep. Bank <laughs> that was like a classic <laughs> '90s font yes. that was just used all over the place. But I I've always wondered about that Saturn font, the official Sega Saturn font. Yeah, you have it here, people. Ken Lowe created that font. So for all the people online using that font to <laughs> create artwork and stuff. <laughs> Now they know who's responsible. Did they actually make a whole font out of it? I don't. I. I uh, they I'm, did. They did. Wow. It, you can download it online. It's called like Nisei or something. N I S E. Wow. I don't know why, but or it's just called the Sega Saturn font. But yes, somebody turned it into a font. <laughs> well, that I didn't do. Yeah, all all I did was the, the the logo piece of it. But that's that's hilarious that somebody made a font out of it. Yeah, you'll live on <laughs> through all of, <laughs> through all of this stuff. Did you also happen to do the 32 Xbox? Just kind of asking out of curiosity. Yeah, I did. That was one. I'm, I know I did a ton of stuff for 32X, including the advertising and some uh, displays for some uh, trade shows. And I'm pretty sure the box uh, was one of those things. Because I, I remember the doing the photo shoot for that console with the colorful blue and yellow 
uh, lights in the back, but it's, I don't have a real strong memory of it, but I... <laughs> Did you just throw that stuff away, like, at yeah, trade, after yeah. trade shows? Yeah. Man, I would love to dumpster dive those convention yeah. centers. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. It's just, you know, it's a piece that, of history. Yeah. That ad that I was talking about earlier with the kid, you know, Mommy, what are those two Sega machines doing? They were, like, huge. They made huge stand-up banners for those, for trade shows that... Um, those, that was a lot of fun to work on. But yeah, they, they I, I have no idea what happened to them after the shows. They must have, maybe they went back to Sega and they had them in the office for a while and they probably destroyed them. <laughs> so so for some of our younger listeners, what were those two Sega machines doing? <laughs> they were making an arcade system. <laughs> oh, of course. Of course they were. Nice. <laughs> a good way to put it. All right, shifting a little bit, Sega Underground. Yes. What was that? So Sega Underground was, um, I, I don't think it ever launched, uh, but they, the brief was they wanted to create uh, kind of a, a club, a rewards program, if you will. And they didn't, it was really interesting because they, they were very adamant about, we don't want any type, we want it to feel tribal, uh, we don't want it to be kind of, we want people to like wonder what it is. And then you'll just when you see it, you recognize it. You'll know, like you're you're an insider. So it was it was a bit of a loyalty uh, program like that they were trying to create. Group. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, I guess you could say that. But they it was definitely something that they uh, obviously they wanted it to take off, but they they didn't want to promote it. They wanted it to be like very insider, you know, very exclusive. Was it in response to Sony's own underground club that they had themselves, or was this something that predated Sony's? Uh, let's see. I think the Sega Underground we did, I think, in 1995. So I don't know when Sony's was, but uh, the brief came in 95 for Sega Underground. I don't think they ever produced it. If Or if they did, they, they, they produced maybe something else that... A different agency did because we we did not go beyond a few rounds of uh, logo mockups. Okay, so say I'm a member of Sega Underground. All right, mm -hmm. I've signed up. I know the logo. I recognize it. What's the goal from it? What do what was the whole purpose? My understanding was it was it was loyalty. You know, build a core group of people that were super engaged fans and you know members that that could earn perks basically. Right. And I mean, they didn't have a, an official magazine uh, in the U.S. during that time. So there wasn't like any kind of way that they could really drive a program like that yeah. without having, because I know PlayStation, you know, they had their underground, PlayStation yeah. Underground. Yeah. And they, you know, they tied it in with the magazine. So they were able to use that as a way to, to drive people to that program. But perhaps it just didn't happen it, you could say it didn't happen because of the saturn kind of waning in support yeah. but it also yeah. could just be because they really didn't have a vehicle aside from like third-party magazine ads yeah. you know like next generation or something to really like push a concept like that yeah but it's interesting because i only found out about it from your portfolio ken <laughs> so honestly like i didn't even know that sega had plans for an underground yeah. so that blew my mind this is an example of work that uh, never saw the light of day, but I like I liked it enough to just you know put it in my portfolio. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. were there talks or any potential plans for a specialized North American Saturn magazine, sort of like PlayStation Underground? Not that I'm aware of. 
I mean, if 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 there was, I, I wouldn't have been privy to it. Nice. Yeah, I'm glad you did. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's like little things, little nuggets like this that kind of inform us yeah. and give us a give us. I guess you could say if we're trying to archive and document the history, because yeah. uh, obviously this stuff is important to us. It's important to kind of tell the story accurately, and it just gives us one tiny little piece of the picture that we were kind of missing, you know. But so yeah, that's cool. I wish I could give you more. I was, I was, I was like I said, a kind of a peon designer, so I, I didn't really get much other than the piece of paper from the client that said this is what we want. <laughs> but I think it was important. I mean, like what you did was more important than. Um, then you're giving yourself credit for because like <laughs> you created a visual brand something that i that i as a kid kind of latched onto. i mean it's hard to to kind of articulate the importance of design but it, it's very subconscious and i know for myself saturn was kind of this underdog console that i just decided to go <laughs> with i i was like you i mean i had a playstation yeah we had one in the house my dad would you know my dad was a musician and would take it on road trips and stuff like that but we had a lot of access and we had a Nintendo 64 too, but the Saturn felt very individual. It felt very yeah. unique and it did. It was kind of a dark horse. And I feel like the iconic, um, you know, the font, the logo, the branding, the oddball off the wall kind of marketing and everything like that really personifies what it was, you know, yeah. like love it or hate it, you know, <laughs> um, it's just, and it, it gives so much character. I would say it, it lends so much more character to the console than just, you know, a beautiful gray slab that Sony had. Yeah. I was super surprised when, uh, when you guys reached out to me, cause I, I thought, I thought Saturn had long died a slow or a fast death rather, <laughs> but I was like, what? It's aged there's like still, a fine wine. <laughs> there's still people out there that, that talk about this thing and know about this thing. Wow. And they're still playing the games. It's incredible. <laughs> I think uh, these days it's a situation of so many people who missed out on it yeah. in the first place because they didn't give it the time of day. Yeah. And so now they're getting to go back and like rediscover it as like a new console, like a new retro cool. console. And so it's, it's gotten new life that way. Yeah. Uh, I think that's pretty awesome. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about uh, your allegiance with hockey. Do you have like a, a hockey team? You're in San Jose, right? I am in San Jose. I Sharks am, fan? Uh, you know, ironically, I actually, I grew up in L.A. So if anything, I would have to say I'm a Kings fan. But but to be honest, hockey is not really my sport. But I uh, I remember I loved the the Sharks logo when that came out. Uh, I thought it was really cool. But, uh, I'm, I'm I just noticed you did a, a lot of fan. hockey. Yeah, I, did, you, yeah. I just noticed you did. Yeah, you did Blazers. You did. Gosh, you did a Patriots. You did the yep. Patriots logo, right? Yep. Yeah, you have a crazy sports portfolio. <laughs> I think that Patriots logo is what got me the job at the Mednick Group. Oh yeah. Yeah, the Scott Mednick, who who is the founder and owner of the Mednick Group, he's a, he's from Boston, and he had done a, a portfolio review of student work. I, and at the time, I had I had been working at another design studio called Evenson Design Group and that's when uh, I worked on the Patriots logo but I was I was in my final year of, of uh, design school I stuck it in my portfolio he saw it in the portfolio review got all you know excited about it and uh, and then he hired me so <laughs> I think that, that logo got me that job hmm. cool when, when the Saturn was first being announced in North America 
It was set to release on September 2nd of 1995. They called it Saturn Day and uh, ha- made a big deal out of that being the mm-hmm. event. And then, as a, as many Saturn fans know, it had a surprise launch at 1995's E3 on May mm-hmm. 11th. Yep. Were you were you made aware of the surprise launch well in advance, or was this something that kind of surprised you? I know a lot of developers who work with Sega who were initially making yeah. launch games didn't know about it. Did you happen to know about that before it happened? We did know about it because we were preparing all of the artwork for the billboards and all the signage at E3, so we, we definitely were in the know. But I'm trying to remember, I don't think when we initially did the work i don't think it was specifically to launch at e3 i think it was uh later in the process that that we were informed hey we want to put this thing on at e3 so you know we i think that changed our timeline a little bit and we had more more pieces to create but uh we definitely were were in the know uh, so it wasn't a surprise for us Gotcha. So you knew it was going to be a surprise launch well in advance, maybe like, say, months ahead of time, but not necessarily at E3, not necessarily on May 11. No, no, we were we were preparing for it right on. It just makes you wonder if the Saturn Day thing was like a decoy, like a planned decoy. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, Dave Warhol, the creator from Bug, last interview, he mentioned that they knew you know, they knew they had to be ready, you know, for a May launch. And I was just like blown away by that. I was like, so wait a second. We all take it, you know, the stories that we've heard that it was like Sega kind of scrambling to try to get ahead of Sony. But I'm just wondering if like that was their plan all along to have this like surprise launch. And it just ended up being kind of like a really bad plan. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You'd mentioned that you guys had a conference room with a bunch of video games, a bunch of Sega stuff for uh, brainstorming. What were your favorite Saturn games? I got to say, I I took to the driving games the most. Uh, oh, Daytona yeah. USA, you know, was probably the one that we, we played the most in there. <laughs> <laughs> nice. The music, the music uh, is, is uh, and I, I listened to your, your racing game podcast from, I think it was season two. That was, that was very nostalgic to, to, uh, to hear that and kind of took me back to those days when we were in that conference room. So I spent most of my time with Ruth racing games. Ironically, my son is now a race car driver or, or an aspiring race car driver. So it kind of came full circle. Nice. Do you have any favorite memories from your entire sort of experience in working with Sega and, and the Saturn brand or anything that really stands out as maybe funny or special or surprising? I mean, I feel like that it, it was a really great start to my career i i sometimes like to joke that you know I, I did the patriots logo and then it was all downhill from there from a from a visibility perspective the reality is I, I got a lot of opportunities to do a lot of really interesting work for a lot of different companies and i i'm a sports fan i'm a video game fan so to be able to work with companies like sega you know the NFL, the NHL, it was a, it was a total privilege for me. Now I work at Apple and Apple's also a company that I, that, you know, gave me a career. I wouldn't have been able to do things if I, if I didn't have my Mac products. So I'm extremely fortunate to be able to have built a career on things that I love. So you mentioned before about doing the nothing else matters campaign. You said you did some print ads for that. And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. like, did you, were you responsible for that ad where like New York City and the and the Twin Towers are like blowing up in like a mushroom cloud? I seem to remember this Nothing Else Matters ad when they launched the there NetLink were, campaign. 
There were two TV spots that, that I worked on. We did blow up a base, a military base. Oh. And then we, the, so we had a guy playing, you know, while he was supposed to be focusing on. Uh, that was the Alpha Sector one, right? Alpha Sector. Yeah, yeah Tango right. Sector. Yes, Alpha Sector. And Tango then, Sector. That's exactly it. And yeah. there's only a cockroach <laughs> left, right? Yes, yes. That's you right. did that? So that, yep. Yep, I was the art director on that one. Wow. Uh, and then the other one was an, was an airplane. Uh, pilots, right? Pilots, yeah. Uh, with the, the Hare Krishna flying the plane in the, in the end. So mm-hmm. um, I don't think we I don't think we blew up. Okay. <laughs> I hope I didn't. Narrowing down your portfolio is one of the hardest things any any creative person mm-hmm. ever has to do because like you 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 love every piece equally and like you have to pick. Uh, what do I put in? The old version of my portfolio was database-driven. Um, this is back when I was kind of experimenting with building databases, and I really wanted to try to put as much in there as possible so that you could filter. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think that's probably the version you saw. Uh, but that that code is so old; it no longer really runs on today's browser standards. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't doesn't work. You you can still link to it from um, from the bottom of, of my current site. Um, it's just there for like archival purposes, but it doesn't really work. <laughs> and then uh, my my current portfolio was really just about like how do I how do I just pick my the favorite things that I that I worked on that kind of uh, broadly represent my my history in, in design and advertising. American Gladiators. Did you guys ever watch American Gladiator? That was, that was oh, fun. absolutely. I did the original logo for American Gladiator. Fun. They don't use that anymore, but <laughs> that's cool. All right, Ken, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with us today. Conversations like this are super valuable to us and to the Saturn community in general. You know, it's been a quarter of a century, but there's still a ton of really dedicated fans. And and to be able to speak to somebody who was involved in, you know, in that time period and in the story of that machine, it's just really special. And so we're really, really grateful. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. I really, really appreciate you reaching out and uh, take me th- taking me through a walk down memory lane. It was a lot of fun. And I'm really glad that, uh, you know, people are still paying attention to this stuff. So thank you for, for your interest and support. I'll see if I can dig rummage through the garage one of these days and find those rings. You find those rings? Yeah. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, that'd be great. You, and you'd have to send them to Ben, you know, so he could uh, don the you rings. Oh, <laughs> dude, I, I would totally wear them. I'd be like, live stream, we're doing this. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, I wanted to thank you guys for listening to this cast. We had uh, two amazing interviews and a breakdown of PRGE and Halloween games. So, wow, this was certainly a loaded cast for sure. I was going to say it was really nice to have uh, Dave on again. I know we don't have him on very often, so that was a special treat as well. Thank you for listening. And remember, you must play Sega Saturn. You really must. It's something you just have to do. If you if you do not play Sega Saturn, the dead spirit of Sega uh, Sega Sanjiro will haunt you. Uh-huh.